Atlanta Diaries, where I aim to have insightful and inspiring conversations with breakthrough women to explore the ebb and flow of their unique journey. I'm your host, Enma Popley. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today is Seema Iyer. With a master's degree in demographics from University of Berkeley, Seema is an HR executive with over 25 years of progressive HR experience in the technology and space industry. She has played a key role in building, transforming, and restructuring organizations through organizational innovation. Seema started her career with Sun Microsystems, where she spent more than a decade and moved on to take on leadership positions at SAP, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, SSL, and most recently as CHRO of Metric Stream in California. Positioned in non-traditional and transformative roles, Seema is recognized and respected for building trust across the enterprise and being a strong voice of HR at the executive table. Seema actively participates in Home of Hope and Bitya. These are non-profits focused on the education and well-being of young girls, and she currently resides in the Bay Area. Welcome to the show, Seema. Uh, thank you so much, Emma. What a pleasure to be here today. Great. Then without further ado, let's start our conversation. Seema, you were pursuing a PhD in demography at Berkeley, and then you pivoted to HR. That was quite a change. What made you pivot? Yes, indeed, indeed. So I don't think this was a planful journey, but it was rather serendipity in a way. But uh, as I was doing my master's in demography at Berkeley, I was working a lot on the life cycle on, you know, people being born and, you know, what happens during their life cycle and then, you know, what happens at the end sort of a thing. And it struck me at some point that that's exactly how employees work in a company. An employee joins the company, there's an employee life cycle, and then the employee exits at some point, but there's a development center in between as well. So I was intrigued by that. And I thought, maybe I could use the same life cycle model that I'd learned in demography and apply it to HR metrics. So this was in the late 1990s. And I pitched it to Sun Microsystems at that time, which was always ahead of its uh, time. And the VP of HR, they loved the idea and uh, I was hired. So uh, gone out of the window, my desires of doing a PhD in demography and becoming a professor, but I ended up coming into the corporate world and started my journey with HR metrics. Wow, that's really interesting, Seema. The VP certainly betted on you. With no formal training in HR, this must have been really challenging. What were then your fears and how did you navigate them? Yes, it was. It was actually quite fascinating. In a way, I was fortunate with the HR metrics because there wasn't that much out there already published. So I could almost start from the scratch and not be worried about people saying, oh, I had it all wrong. And maybe, you know, when you're young and you're starting your life out, you're less worried. You have a lot of courage in a way to dry stuff out. But of course, I mean, it was it was scary. So, you know, starting from nothing and trying to build something when there weren't even great tools out there. And I still remember after about three months or so, I was asked to present at an HR All Hands 
all the metrics that I'd done, I, I, I still, I still remember to the day how that's when the imposter syndrome really hit me, and I was like, oh my god, I'm going to go out there and say. Uh, and show them my work and what if they really know a lot more and what I've got it all wrong. So my projections and my forecasts on what is going to happen to employees and how college hiring could work. I mean, I had all sorts of metrics in there. And that's when I learned the power of preparation. And I realized if I could prepare and go there with at least having the knowledge or the confidence that I have done whatever I could, and I'm well prepared to go on stage. That helps me a really long time. And that's something I've always taken to heart and said, got to be prepared. So what then was your approach? What kind of strategies did you use to motivate your stakeholders and make your voice heard? So I would say, uh, you know, knowing the business really, really helps when I was able to put everything in context of the business versus just talking about HR metrics really helps. Then people can relate to it. So they know exactly what it means. So an example, you know, um, later on that I ended up doing was moving to workforce planning, which was another slightly non-traditional offbeat HR career. And my then manager, Sheila Couch, and I thought through it and said, someone's got to be smarter than us and have done it before. And we looked up workforce planning models and said, okay, forget HR. Where else could this model have been used? And really, it was a supply chain model. So we picked up a supply chain model from Stanford and we, you know, we made it into an HR model. That's where I I keep coming back to. If you can put it in the context of the business, as well as look at other things that have been done before, it's a winner, truly. And that's how I think I've, it's really in a way shaped my career on saying, where else has it been done? Who else has done it before? And can I use those learnings to create something different here? Seema, you're talking about a lot of vulnerability. Share with me your perspective on vulnerability. It's interesting because, you know, I often ask for feedback and, you know, you you get feedback, which is, you know, very positive, really, really doing well. You know, people are happy with your ideas and you're working hard, but then you really realize you aren't going upwards anymore. People want to give you broader challenges, broader roles, and I think many of us might relate to it that you end up with things that you are doing more of and you're you know having to spend more and more time but you're really not sure where it's going to take you and I really didn't know how to break that cycle at some point I didn't know how to ask for that feedback which would help me go upwards versus you know take on more work and you know at some point I think I also would give up fast when I realized that was happening and, you know, look for a change in my role versus trying to tackle it and understand what should I be doing differently, you know, that can really help me move up versus just more work. And it came down to one really simple thing. And it was about being able to showcase my work 
being able to network a little bit more and put myself out there. Till then, and to a great extent, even I think I do it even now, my work is my face. I expect my work to showcase itself versus putting myself out there and allowing myself to to be, you know, more seen. Just the work itself isn't going to carry itself. It took me a long time to realize that. And once I understood that piece, I think my journey was taking a totally different trajectory after that. So you were deliberate and intentional about it. Seema, tell us about your approach. How did you traverse this journey to get that rightful seat at the table, the CHRO <laughs> position? Sure, sure. I, and again, I think I think you will also see that I've always uh, believed know the business really well. If you have a you know senior leader that you're supporting, really understand what do they do, what you know, what are the challenges, what is keeping them up at night, and truly understand what is happening around externally as well in competition and come there from a place of huge strength. And then, you know, rather than start from the scratch, you know, I always look at what someone smart has got to have thought through it. In fact, let let me also tell you, one of the companies, I started an award called uh, the Best Recycled Idea Award, which really meant that if you had a problem, You went and first looked up who has done it before, whether in your team, other teams, 10 years ago, five years ago or something, take that idea and build upon it. And so the award would actually recognize this person who has almost recycled the idea and rather than start from the scratch and cut down so much time in development, as well as the original team. Yeah. So the original team would then be encouraged to actually share the knowledge. And the person who's recycled the idea would also get uh, recognized for being smart enough to not start from the scratch and, you know, cut down a lot of development time. And uh, the only mistake I made, actually, was initially calling it uh, the plagiarism award. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) That name didn't go very well. And, And trust me, the number of people nominated the first year was very, very small. Because they didn't like to be called that, but uh, and, and then we came up with some you know better names. But the, you know the essential content was, hey, you know, go and you know recycle the idea, and yeah. and do it smarter and a much better way. Why reinvent the wheel when it's already there? When it's already there, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and I think things like this and you know really helped me keep developing myself as well as doing things which were not part of my core job. I was very fortunate that I would ask my manager, and most of the managers did agree, if I could spend 10% of my time doing things which are outside of my core work. And when you say 10%, most managers actually do agree, though you have to realize it's never 90 and 10%. It's always 100% of your current job and then another 25% of whatever else you take on. But it's fascinating, nevertheless, because that gave me a lot of exposure to things which were not core to my HR world. 
I think one of my most fascinating experiences was being part of a team which was setting up virtual reality platform for collaboration years, about 12 to 15 years ago, or doing a, you know, there was a strategy cascade to be done by marketing. So I was part of that. That really helped me broaden my experience, my exposure internally as well as externally to a really, really great extent. And I think it also helped me understand what I was not good at as well. Very interesting. You said you're operational and solution-oriented. These are unique skill sets for an HR executive. Talk to us about how you evolved in your leadership journey. That was a journey where, where you learn a lot. And I I think I've often told people I'm I'm a problem solver and I'm less of a coach. And even though I've tried and it's taken me a very long time to put in a coaching hat on, but initially when I started off, I, I was there. I would you know solve the problem for my team. I would solve the problem for my uh, senior stakeholders. And I was very popular, very, very popular because of that. But that doesn't scale. And I couldn't teach them how to fish. And it took me some time to figure that out. And realize if I couldn't step back and help them just really coach them in a way so that they themselves could solve the problems, I myself wasn't being looked at as a leader. I could at best be a manager. So I really couldn't lead. And similarly for my team as well, if I solved the problems, I couldn't get that scale from them because there was only that much I could scale. So it was a journey trying to change my own mindset on how will I help people come along with me in the journey so that they themselves saw the issues and could solve it themselves with me being there for them and truly be a leader? I think that's where my senior stakeholders as well as my peers or my employees, you know, really sort of helped me switch from being a manager to a true leader. If I look back, I think my as I switched on to my first head of HR role at a space systems, Laurel, which was a space company. And I was moving from technology to space. And I had a lot of learning to do. And in fact, that's the first time I realized I was working with real rocket scientists, right? Oh. So I couldn't even, uh, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a very different experience, right? And it's just a phenomenal company, phenomenal set of people, very brilliant And I think that's where I had to really up my game as well and really understand how do I now take these really, really smart people on the journey along with me. And that tested me the most. And I think it's it's, it was one of the best experiences I've had and really helped me develop. Shifting gears a little bit, Seema, what kind of compromise did you have to make as you pursued your professional goals? Well, I would definitely say I, I've been fortunate to be very well supported in my family and my parents as well. My, my mother is a huge role model as a professor of English literature who was fairly self-made. She's been a huge role model as well. But I do remember when I had my kids and I have two of them, it was always a challenge on who's going to drop the kids off, for example, in the morning, right? Uh, no one wants to do it. My, my kids were not that easy going into daycare and you know, you didn't want to be the one dropping them off and ruining your entire day with guilt. 
so so between my husband and I, we would forever be having that discussion on who's going to drop the child off the next day. And, uh, you know, whoever started earlier didn't have to do the drop-off. You know, the <laughs> person who's left had to do the drop-off. So we kept you know, competing with each other, who's going to go earlier to work. So in the end, I would end up going at 5 a.m. to work. And um, (laughs) it was, of course, to avoid doing the drop-off. But uh, in the end, it worked out really well. I would go at 5 and then I'd be, uh, you know, wrapped up early so I could pick up my child in the afternoon, late in the afternoon, and have the day to spend with them. So we sort of balanced it out throughout and same with drop-offs and pickups with uh, games and everything. You know, you want to do it all, but I don't think without any support, I could have done it. Were there any other support systems you built for yourself, given that I'm assuming it was a nuclear family in the U.S.? Yes, indeed. Friends, other parents of teammates, and I would offer to do the weekend routes and take them for away games if they could do the weekday evenings, which was, you know, sometimes easier for them and try to do as much as possible with swim meets and spending the time, you know, the three hour volunteer time, somehow managing it and taking a little bit of the easier volunteering but a lot of support from, I mean, it takes a village to praise a child, I definitely say. And I've, you know, we've had our friends and teammates, parents for sure. Do you feel in any way you sacrificed on your own personal journey, which is non-professional Seema's journey? And on and with the gift of hindsight, would you do it any differently? <laughs> <laughs> As I look back, I feel that if I really had set my mind to it, I could have focused a little bit more on a hobby or something. I don't think it was a compromise as much as I probably didn't put my mind to it. I And I, I highly encourage people to do it versus being so, you know, only doing limited things. I think you can stretch your time a lot more. It's only very recently that I decided, okay, I'm going to learn how to golf. So, and I'm able to take time out if I want to, you know, it may not be, you know, three times a week or four times a week, but, you know, once in a while, I'm able to get out and do it. I do look back and I feel I could have done more. Yep. Seema, talk to me about your mentorship journey, your role models, or you as a mentor. I have had a few informal mentors. I have tried some formal mentoring and coaching as well, but I think my informal mentors have ended up also being my supporters. And that has probably been a far, far richer journey for me. And it's been fantastic. And I do keep in touch with them. And this is from years and years ago. You know, I still reach out to them when I'm making a career change and when I'm trying to figure out, you know, what next. And just a coffee, just a chat, just a call. I think it's been wonderful having some very strong mentors in my life and men and women both, I mean, both leaders. And in fact, people not necessarily from HR, you know, one's been from finance, there's another mentor of mine from marketing, who I really, really appreciate. And it's fantastic. I've tried to give back as well, you know, doing some mentorship on my own. I think I I could do a lot more and I should be doing a lot more though. 
So did you sort of reach out on your own or was it just pure organically? Like love to know more about it because I'm sure that's going to motivate others also on understanding that, you know, mentorship is powerful because I think it comes with a lot of vulnerability and, you know, like your attitude on there's way more to learn. So Right, right. Mm-hmm. I think it's at some point in your life when you sit down and you reflect and there's a realization that hits you that even though so this particular person or a leader, whoever, isn't my mentor, but that person is very open. I can have the conversation. They are helping me. And that's when you realize, aha, that's that's my informal mentor right there. So it, it happened very organically. But it was a time when I actually had sat down and really gave some thought to it. And that's when I identified who are the people in my life who are these sort of go-to people. Then I started reaching out to them more formally and I gave them absolutely the acknowledgement as well and made it a little bit more formal in that way. But I think I've it has to sort of start from someplace like that. You know, some people might be very fortunate and have formal mentorships keep growing over the years, but all my formal mentorships, it's sometimes hard when you, when it's done on a regular time period, because what you need a mentorship for might happen at any point and may not happen for the six-month program that you're in, right? And that's where I feel the informal mentorship has worked really well for me. Going back to work, um, tell me what was your biggest fear? if any, and how did you cope with it? So I'm in a time of my life where my younger child has graduated and we had promised ourselves uh, that once both our kids are done from college, we would go out with a completely new cultural experience. So in fact, I taken some time off from work because we are moving to a completely different country. Wow. Where... I am going to have a language barrier. I don't know a single person there, but we're going there for two to three years and I do have a lot of trepidation. Am I going to find a job there? How am I going to find a job? It is testing, truly testing my networking, I would say, abilities at this point because I'm trying to reach out to people who may know someone in that country, people I I haven't worked with in years and years and trying to rekindle my relationship. <laughs> That was one of the things I wish look back and said, gosh, I should have been better at networking early on in my life. Put yourself out there. That's such an important life lesson. Seema, tell us about your three-month sabbatical with your family. Does this decision have anything to do with your travels? It's been a few years when my kids, my husband and I, the four of us just backpacked around and we took a little bit of extra time off and we backpacked around, you know, multiple countries. And I think my biggest learning was people are the same everywhere. If you really look at that in, in you know, complete openness. And sometimes we'll do a luxury trip, but very often, and we love to do it very local, stay in local places and go eat the local food and walk around and truly understand the culture of the country. And it's a huge experience to get to know different cultures in one go, as well as understand human nature is the same everywhere. 
And uh, I just came back as a much richer person and a stronger family as well. All of us managed to, you know, get along for the three months and we came back very, very strong and very huge exposure to food. So we can eat cuisines of every country by now and probably cook a little bit. And I think it just taught me a lot, taught me a lot. That's really beautiful. Stronger family. I'm sure a trip of this kind must be a bucket list item for many listeners. It surely is for me. Seema, we spoke fleetingly about your little notebook last time. Tell us more about it. I found it really cool and special. Oh, I have this little, little dog-eared notebook by now where I think a few years ago, I, I just wanted to feel and sound smarter. <laughs> and so I started writing down things I would read or just just maybe it was sometimes a sentence, sometimes it was just a statistic that I'd heard on a radio or someone had said something or just even in a conversation, somebody had a phrase or a comment which just sounded really smart and I would go back home and I would take note of it because I just felt I needed to be smarter or sound really smart. So I started making those notes and then it sort of became a habit. And sometimes I look back and at the notebook and I say, go back like 15 years. And I say, oh my God, I was so much more profound at that time than I am right now. But it was interesting, all sorts of things and that I would write down. And it didn't have anything to do with HR because of course you just want to have a broader broader experience. It could be something about history. It could be something about economics. It could be just a phrase someone's used. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And I I still enjoy reading through it sometimes. Do you still write on it? I tend to go back to it and write a little bit less, a little bit less, not because there's not much to write, but I think I'm moving a lot between having stuff on different media versus just a notebook. So I think it's a little bit more scattered right now. Mm -hmm. So as I worked towards Atlanta Diaries, I conducted an informal survey pretty much across the globe. I told you about it last time. I invited questions from aspiring women leaders. There was one question that came repeatedly. Seema, help us answer that question. What do we do to get our rightful seat at the table? I think when I look back, I sort of followed my heart everywhere in my career. And I truly encourage people to do that because it's great to experiment early on in your career. I think I spent the first few roles just following my heart, you know, what I wanted to do, HR metrics, then I wanted to do compensation, workforce planning. I did something called open work, you know, just just about anything, virtual collaboration, just a lot of broad-based roles. It really helps you develop as a person. It broadens your viewpoint to a great extent. But after some time, you have to sit back and analyze what is it that you really want to specialize in. Because in the end, when you're looking for a leadership role, they are looking for a great breadth, which is fantastic, but they're also looking for a lot of depth. And whether it's you decide it's seven, eight years or 10 years of your life where you're really going to follow a passion and experiment. But after that, choose your focus area and just go for it. <clears throat> and, and I think that's 
where I naturally progressed as well into an HR business partner role where I could bring in all my experiences and really be a truly strategic HR business partner. But then I had to just focus on that and start to take on bigger and more strategic and more challenging roles in that arena, but just start developing the depth. So I would encourage women if you know they can think through that model and see how to tweak that sort of a model to their lives and what would work for them. There was another theme which emerged from the survey. It's harder for us and more challenging. How do we balance our family life and work life? What can we do to not give up? Hmm. I think the first thing I would say, and I'm sure they've heard it from multiple places, is stop feeling guilty. Mm. You cannot have it all. I mean, maybe you could, but I didn't have it all. And I had to, at some point, just stop feeling bad about it. I mean, if you miss coming back home for dinner or you have to ask someone else to do a pickup or ask for help, just do it. Because sometimes you just have to take make choices, which, you know, and sometimes work will come first. It's great to say families first and everything, but there are times when you just say, okay, I, I can sacrifice a little bit here and there and focus on something else right now and focus on myself sometimes as well. But if you start feeling guilty about that, that's a hard place to be in. And trust me, I I feel when you grow up and you watch your kids and they've seen you balance it out, they, they come out stronger and they also will have a role model to fall back on. Seema, share with us a time when you faced imposter syndrome and self-doubt. How did you navigate it? One of the work or the team that I had joined at Sun Microsystems was a team called Open Work, which was a you know completely offbeat team. In fact, it was a team which consisted of IT people, real estate designers, and HR. And this is all about how do you design an office of the future where people can work from anywhere and collaborate from anywhere. So my role in that was more around uh, identifying how do people work and how can we have a lot of remote collaboration using certain IT tools as well as the real estate or the office design. And this I'm talking about 15 years ago. And this was devised by a wonderful vice president who was there at Sun and he had this whole vision and I was just an employee there, you know, a team member for him. And we, we got an invitation from a European consortium, which wanted to understand more about remote work as well as understand IT infrastructure around that. And so they invited someone, you know, from this team to come and speak to them. And I was chosen to actually go and represent and talk about this whole uh, experiment that we were doing. And that time we were doing it in the Czech Republic. So I go to Belgium and I enter this room and it's at least 50, 60 people. And I look around and they're all, you know, men. And probably very seasoned and experienced men in gray, black, blue suits. And I walk in. I could just almost see their faces because they had invited someone from the U.S. to come and talk about virtual collaboration. And here I'm coming in, Indian woman in the 30s, come in and 
I had to go and talk to them and tell them about the experiment and what our findings were and really try to convince them that we had sort of figured it out. I still remember if you're talking about imposter syndrome, yeah, <laughs> that, that was it. That was my big experience at that time. And it came back to, I, I knew what I was saying. I believed in what I was saying. And I had the experiences that I could talk about. And once you start talking about that, and that's when I think I, I probably broke a lot of barriers on that day. But it was a very memorable experience for sure. You are such a successful woman leader, but how often do you evaluate or did you evaluate your career roadmap with the wisdom of hindsight? Any perspective on that? Yeah, I think many of us tend to evaluate our careers every time we are at a crossroad. Is it that, you know, you've finished a certain number of years in a company, maybe you're wanting to take a new role or the company's not doing well or the team's managers change. So it's sort of at a crossroad and you start thinking about, okay, what next? And I think many of us do that as a hindsight. So if only, I, even I feel at, at an earlier age, if I could have sat down and charted out my career, and very often the career has to be extremely latticed because you cannot just have upward movement. You have to go sideways to build up, to actually go upwards. I did sit down and I, I try even now every uh, couple of years or so, write down what my aspirations are, how am I going to reach there, where are my gaps and how I'm going to fill out those gaps. I think if we could make this annual journey, that would be even better rather than it be, you know, hindsight or a crossroads discussion. On a lighter note, Seema, if you were going to write a book, what would it be about? <laughs> oh, I'm fascinated by history. We've seen one of the biggest economics ups and downs of the last 20, 25 years, and now we've had COVID as well. I mean, what a fascinating background to have on. I'd probably write a love story, though, you know, a very <laughs> romantic novel, but has to have the basis of the historical, economic, medical background to it. Oh my God, I mean, there's so much to write about, which also <laughs> means, you know, will I ever get to it though? <laughs> that was great. So through these insightful conversations in Atlanta Diaries, I really want to help women professionals learn and perhaps even unlearn their definitions of success. Any parting thoughts or advice you would like to give as they listen in? put yourself out there. Uh, really don't worry about what people might say or whatever. Just have the courage. You put yourself out there and you will be noticed and you will keep going up. Thank you so much for your time, Seema. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Such a pleasure talking to Emma. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Atlanta Diaries in its entirety. I really hope you found the conversation insightful or inspiring. I really wish for Atlanta Diaries to be a place where we can learn and unlearn our definitions of success, build a community for the ones who may have multiple North Stars and connect deeply beyond the limit of this audio file. I do have a request for you. Please share with others who you feel will benefit from this conversation. Because of these conversations or even a small segment of them, can help champion the journey of even one woman, it'll be worth all the effort. 
I would love to get suggestions of breakthrough women from you to help strengthen my repertoire. I look forward to seeing you next week for another insightful conversation at Atlanta Diaries.